music, I'm, mindfulness, and madness. Yep. I'm, I'm de-phoning in from beautiful southeast Portland, Oregon. I'm Michael Haley in Studio City, California, Los Angeles. And I'm, on, Jason. And I'm Anu Kirk in uh, San Francisco, California. Yeah, you are. In a big way. So what what's what what's what are we talking about, Anu? What 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 are we gonna do? G is for good. Kenny G is the best selling instrumentalist of all time. Since starting his career in the early eighties, he's sold more than seventy five million records. He has a pile of gold and multi platinum releases, and one of his records has been awarded diamond status by the RIAA. These numbers put Kenny G squarely in the top-selling artists of all time, in the same level, if not above, artists like Neil Diamond, Frank Sinatra, Simon and Garfunkel, Johnny Cash, Van Halen, Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson, Adele, and Sting. This is all the more remarkable given that Kenny G is a saxophone player. He doesn't sing and play the sax like Eddie Money did. He just plays the sax. Unlike most successful artists, he doesn't dress up in wild outfits, have an outsized stage presence, or rely on music videos or elaborate stage shows. He looks like the love child of Weird Al Yankovic and Michael Bolton. (laughs) Kenny G also faces a withering critical environment unusual for someone at his level of success. Kenny G's music might be extremely well-liked, hence the massive sales and enduring career, but you'll be hard-pressed to find any music critics who admit to liking it or who have positive things to say about it. And yet, watching a recent documentary called Listening to Kenny G, you will see a spectrum of people across age, gender, and background who all absolutely love his music and talk about what it means to them and how it makes them feel. Kenny G might be popular, but is he any good? The recent HBO documentary, Listening to Kenny G, profiles the artist while touching on these issues. The film is well made. Penny Lane's direction manages to highlight the empty smugness of the critics, while simultaneously showing that Kenny G himself recognizes that his strange success is mostly due to luck, his own hard work, and only partially due to his artistry. Kenneth Gorlick is a 65-year-old straight white Jewish man who got his start playing saxophone in a high school jazz band. He fell in love with the instrument and the idea of practicing and improving and pursued a career in music. His skill quickly saw him climbing up through local groups until he was hired by Jeff Lorber. And that led to Clive Davis of Arista Records signing Kenny G and initially starting him on what looked to be a failed pop career. Arista's promotional engine got Kenny G on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, but circumstances meant that instead of two songs as planned, there would only be time for one. Reminiscent of Elvis Costello's decision to abruptly switch to Radio Radio on Saturday Night Live, Kenny G made a secret decision to play his instrumental songbird instead of the forgettable, lame single agreed upon by the label and the Tonight Show bookers. When he started playing songbird, they were all furious. But the song resonated with the audience uh, and the viewers who called radio stations to find out what the song was. Clive Davis engaged in a personal letter-writing campaign to key radio stations, and soon, Kenny G's Songbird was playing on pop stations and R&B stations and jazz stations. It proved so popular, it arguably spawned the entire smooth jazz genre. 
The genre itself was immensely successful and omnipresent, but is now considered something of a joke or an embarrassment, unless looked at through a lens of millennial cringe or nostalgic yearning for some kind of authentic past. Again, extremely popular, but was it good? What differentiates good art and artists from bad? Why are critics and their opinions so frequently far apart from what people actually like? How do creative people like us figure out what makes our work good and or bad? How do we improve? This is our topic for this episode of Music, Mindfulness, and Madness. Mm. Well done. Sharp stop there. We need, we so need have, a, you guys, have you seen the documentary? I have. I have I've watched uh, all of the music, I think almost all of the music box stuff except for that one. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. I've, I've heard great things about it from like three different people, unlikely referrals, and I went, okay. And I, I think I heard an interview or two with him, and I'm like, I like that guy. Why does everyone hate his shit, you know? And um, yeah, it's curious. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's in my queue for sure, but uh, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, he's, he's 65. He still practices three hours a day. Wow. It's impressive. Yeah, I mean, some of that is like when you play a real instrument, like like saxophone, you, you sort of have to, uh, to be able to yes. continue to play it all. Saxophone, still, like, trumpet. Yeah, that singing. stuff you have to. You have to, you have to keep your lip built up. You yeah. have to. Got to keep the embouchure. So uh, anyway, I, I thought it was a really interesting and timely. You know, we'd picked this topic, uh, and I ended up watching the documentary after we had, had decided we were going to talk about this this week. But it, it, it struck me as, as uh, an interesting way in. Uh, simply because, as I noted here, like by all standards, uh, Kenny G is a, a legit artist, right? You don't sell that many records just because of like the promotional machine or have a career that has spanned decades uh, just because of a promotional machine. Uh, so he's clearly doing something. Now that's and and having watched the documentary, I have to say, like I I would never describe myself as a Kenny G fan, but I have absolute respect for his craft and his dedication and the fact that he is pursuing his artistic vision such as it is right he is a, a guy who basically is like i make the kind of music that i like and he made this key decision on the tonight show of like screw everybody else i'm going to play the song that i want to play this is my one shot on the on the tonight show yeah. and so I, i'm gonna you know wh whether i'm gonna succeed or fail i want to do it with the song that i believe in and that was the thing that, that catapulted him to stardom. And I find something about that beautiful. That said, I do not like his music, right? Um, it's, it's not just the production trappings. It is sort of the nature of what he does doesn't, doesn't resonate with me. Um, I, can, I can appreciate what goes into it, but I don't, I don't even have like a Kenny G MP3, you know, much less a, a, a record or, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's curious, you know, on this subject of... Um and I guess for clarity, you know, like what's, how do we define good versus bad um, is so subjective, you know, in terms of, I mean, if we're talking about music specifically, because that's kind of our thing. Um, and yeah, what a great lead in, you know, for someone who's just, you know, that, that name, there's an automatic opinion that comes up with every musician that I would probably ask and go like, hey, Kenny G. And they'd be like, oh. 
Yuck. They wouldn't go like, oh my God. Well, they'll probably now they'll just go, hey, have you seen the documentary? And I'll be like, no, not yet. It's still in my queue. And does it matter? I mean, Kenny G is apparently having, he's living his best life, as the kids say. You know, how many records did he sell? 75 million? 75 million. And recently, I wasn't even aware of this, but like he's played on Kanye records and he's done some other things. And apparently he's got pretty strong social media game. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's astounding. Yeah. So, I mean, most of the industry, I mean, there's the critics, right? And they're going to go, you know, if it's a smooth jazz critic, they're going to go, oh, yeah. He's the best. But if but every other critic, every other rock and roll, you know, even classical perhaps, they'll just get into like, no, no, no. No, no, no. We do not listen to that man. But if you ask Clive Davis, I'm sure he's pleased with his music. More, you know, it's about sales at that point. If you ask record industry people, and if they know a little bit about his sales, they'll be like, oh, yeah, he's a complete success. Not my jam, but a total success. So good based on the numbers. And so it's a curious thing, you know, I've heard bands that I love so much. This is why I know I'm probably not the best A&R guys, because there's so much music that I love that I don't know if it would sell or not. I know that I love it, and I know there's a group of people out there that would love it, but is it going to sell 75 million records? I doubt it. And even he's, you know, really an anomaly. I mean, how many other bands like, you know, there's the Metallicas and the uh, all the big bands of, um, you know, Dylan, Sting. Sting sold shit tons of records, you know, The Police, all that. And like, yeah, good. High sales, good. You know, low sales, bad. But some of my favorite artists are just, you know, I don't really know how many records they've sold and I kind of don't care because I don't really define it by numbers. It's impressive and it makes me want to go, hmm. Maybe there's something I'm missing about this Kenny G kid, but that's sort of our meritocracy that we live in in the West of like, you know, oh, it sold a lot of records. It's probably maybe good. But I, do you I guys, do you, do you think that because, you know, we're all sort of Gen X that we immediately have a kind of allergic reaction and there's this sort of uh, idea that like nothing is any good if other people like it. And, and if lots of people really like something, it's automatically suspect uh, or, um, or, or put another way, like, do you think that either like what the critics, wh whether for you or in general, do you think what the critics say matters? Do you think that how much something sells or how popular it is matters either like in a positive way or a negative way? Hmm. Peaks my curiosity. I'll say that much, you know, it's like, huh, why are they, you know, if I see like this, and I think this is really you know, promotion and PR and all that, where I'm seeing lots and lots and lots of the same person all the time on social media or on television, and I'm going, okay, good PR team, but it still makes, I still have that cynicism in me, you know, um, that it makes me think, you know, oh, I don't really know about them. I can, you know, open up my head and go, maybe I should check it out. I don't really know about them. I'm curious as to why there's certain bands that came out. I won't name any names right now because some of them are like, I was like, no, no, no. I heard a song and I went, no, 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 no. And then they're hugely successful. And I'm still like, no, 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 not for me. But for the, the kids or whoever is listening to it, I'm like, good for them. Good. You know, I want, I want people to have the kind of success that they want to have. You know, it just not may, it may not be for me. Um, but mm -hmm. there's certainly some cynicism there. 
So, yeah. So for me, um, there's there's a very distinct line of demarcation in my life that goes pre-punk rock, post-punk rock. <laughs> when I was when I was very young, I mean, I I was I I. I was a huge fan of music from from as far back as I can remember, from the youngest age. Um, uh, so I always loved music. Um, I I had a grandmother who um, thankfully recognized she was she was really the only one amongst the elders in my in my family that looked at me and went, "Oh, he wants to be a musician." and and I actively encouraged it. Like she would go out. She she bought me my first Beatles record. She wow. would um, make it a point. Um, I was living with her for the. F- uh, I was we, we lived with her until I was about six or seven, about six, I guess, before we moved to Hawaii. Um, so Hawaii. when we lived. Yeah, I lived in Hawaii for a while. I did not know this. Yeah, I did. Another story for another time. Yeah, I lived in Hawaii <laughs> for like two years when I was a kid. Um. Mahalo, bro. Thanks. Yeah, but um, when I was very young, my my grandma ran a uh, ran a property. She was a property manager for a little duplex in Lomita, off of PCH, and we lived there. And she would she would get me records. I mean, I and I was like three or four, you know. So I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable thinking back, you know, like being a parent now. And and looking at my kids at that age, and and for her to to look at me and go, oh, he's that's 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 his calling. That's what he wants to do. I mean, it it was, you know, thinking back on some of the things she did, she recognized it, um, which was really cool. Um, and she would buy me records. And um, when uh, uh, when I was a kid, uh, was was during the time that 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 Beatles cartoon that was on on Saturday mornings. Uh, what happened? She would call me in from outside, from playing outside, uh, to to and and made sure that that uh, that I was uh, squatting in front of the telly uh, when the Beatles cartoons came on because I fucking loved them. Um, she when the Jackson Five cartoons came out and the Rick Springfield Saturday Morning cartoons came out, you know, same thing. Yeah. She was always like, "Hey, you got to come in." Got to come in. The Jackson Five cartoons on, so um, I was steeped in all of that. You know, uh, tweeny, late sixties, early seventies pop, um, pop stuff, and and then the Beatles. But but like the Beatles stuff that I listened to was like, you know, it was like Meet the Beatles stuff. It was early Beatles stuff. Um. So and and I loved all that stuff. Um, that ironically, all of that said, the thing that, that really, that, that, the, uh, the thing that really, uh, the, the, the band, band, it wasn't, wasn't really a band. The thing that I looked at and went, oh shit, I really want to do that was of all things, the Partridge family. Mm. I fucking loved the Partridge family. I was obsessed with the Partridge family. I was obsessed with David Cassidy. Um, as 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 an artist, you know, like I would uh, I would find like interviews with him in in, uh, in in all the teeny bopper magazines and stuff, and just w- would want to know you know all about him, like what he's into. 
I, and uh, I found out at a very early, early age that in a roundabout way, he was saying in his interviews, like he fuck, he hated what he did. Like he wanted to be, he, he fancied himself a blues musician and uh, wanted to, and would actively go to the producers and ask if he could, he could, he could have, he could write and perform his own stuff. And they would always say no. Um, and, um, and so I was really into him and then I was in, into all of the other stuff at that time. I was loved the Osmonds. Love the Jackson Five. Um, in, in in those days, in the early seventies, you know, um, variety shows were king. Everybody wanted their own version of the Ed Sullivan Show, and 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 all of the networks were on this jag where they would do like all these one-off shows with like like the Osmonds and the, and the Jackson Five, um, and the Brady Bunch, and the Brady Bunch actors, and and I would watch all that stuff. So I I, I loved all the episodes. Uh, when the Brady Bunch decided they were going to they were going to become a group, I loved Bobby <laughs> Sherman. I fucking love Bobby Sherman. Yes. When uh, when the Honeycomb cereal came out with the uh, the little flexi disc for uh, that had Bobby Sherman on the back, played the shit out of that shit. Loved that stuff. Loved it all. Did I? I just did. I didn't know. I mean, I was you know a little kid. I didn't know what was good and bad, but. Um, I loved all that stuff. Well, it cl- clearly, you you thought something about it was good. It engaged you somehow. Like, have have you ever gone back and listened to that stuff with sort I of have. your adult ears? So I learned some things about that stuff, about a lot of that stuff uh, in later years. Um, one of which was a lot of that stuff was performed by the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, all of the Partridge Family shit. It's all the Wrecking Crew. It's all the fucking Wrecking Crew. Uh, the Brady Bunch stuff, probably Wrecking Crew. Um, because you, if you've ever watched that Wrecking Crew doc, they played on fucking everything. They played on everything and every uh, and played with everybody. And uh, after I watched that doc, documentary a couple times, like there's earmarks in the Wrecking Club sound that you can hear in, the, in those pop songs. I, I'm sure Bobby Sherman used them. Like everybody did. Every, you know, like I, you listen to them talk about like everybody used us. We played on everything. And, and you can hear it. So the... I, that's the thing that kind of carried with me. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't like any of that stuff now, but the thing that, that, that did, uh, that did, um, withstand the test of time was the thing that I, you know, was the, the stuff I discovered later that the musicians that, that were playing on those, those records were the same musicians that played on Pet Sounds, which was just, just, which was just incredible to me, you know, like, it's just the most, it's the craziest thing to think, that the same guys that played uh, played on "I Woke Up and Loved This Morning" were the guys that played on uh, "Sloop John B." You know, yeah, guys. And the they, what's that? Don't forget the ladies. The yeah, right. Uh, oh, what's her name? Carol Carol Kane. Yeah, Carol Kane played all that stuff. Yeah, so I learned learned who Carol <clears throat> Kane was. Like, and she played on all that shit too. And you know, she was an amazing musician. Um, but I don't listen to any of that stuff anymore really except for when you know i follow the mcdonald brothers from red cross on on the socials and, and every once in a while they'll, they'll put they, they clearly still like all that stuff they post weird little clips of things um yeah. by people from that era you know they were still steeped on that 60s 70s pop stuff it was just like you know it still comes through the new stuff that they do too and i'm just like it does tried and true it's just yeah. what they do they love that whole era. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, 
there, there were things like that 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 um, that I appreciated. The Osmonds, boy, I, you know, there's 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 a there's a really good documentary series on Apple TV called 1971, and and it's just like six or seven episodes. Highly recommended. I've probably watched it ten or fifteen times at this point. I just I turn it on and, and fall asleep to it a lot of times. And uh, there was an episode where they kind of leaned a little bit into the pop music going on in that era, and they showed some clips of the Osmonds that I know I watched as a kid and was just like, oh, my God, they're amazing. And it was just like, you know, choreographed dancing and Donnie, Donnie doing the, the Donnie team beat thing, like doing the cute, like, lead vocal break, you know, and it's bad. It's really, really bad. Yeah, but his hair it, hair was amazing. What, what do you mean by it's bad, D? Yeah, that's this is kind of to the point. What's bad about it? What's good about it? Or did it change over time? Is time the revelator, you know? That's a good question. Um, there's just a lot of tropes in the stuff that, that's very endemic of the period of like what people were doing with pop music, I guess. <clears throat> you know? It just it's just very bland and and uh, the the whole dance choreography looking at it now through the lens of 2022 is just fucking weird. It's weird. I don't know. It's weird and, and weird in a uh, apparently a bad way and not weird in a good way. Weird in a bad way. So so maybe in in some sense it's like. Uh, it's it's sort of for children, and if you don't know anything, I'm, I'm just going to throw this it's out. For here children. Anything. It's so for it's children. For, it's for children, and if you don't know anything about anything, you look at it and you're like, oh, this is cool and fun. But then when you get a little bit older, you're like, well, this is really contrived, and it's not authentic, and it is very much a pastiche of uh, current fashion, and it's not designed for any sort of longevity. It's not adding no. anything to the artistic conversation, uh, et cetera. It's 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 cocoa puffs. It's it's sugary cereal, and and it's clearly the product of people sitting in the room going, "Okay, what are the kids going to like?" Yeah, that's you know? a lot. Of it. Um, well, that's, that's as, a as devil's advocate. Isn't that the music business always? I mean, couldn't couldn't you argue that when you were signed to Cleopatra, the whole thing was they were looking at at your band and being like, well. All of the goth industrial kids like this crap, so let's. Oh well, that. yeah, no question. <laughs> no, qu- in fact, in fact, that's a very good point, and that really kind of ended up being our our undoing. Because the guy that ran the label had this vision of what we should be. Oh yeah. That he's he's clearly like if you look at the and and the, the label's still around, it's still still thriving. It's he's still got tons. He's got a huge roster of people on that label. Um, if you look at the, the people that that uh, that he's signed in the ensuing years, it's it's pretty obvious that there's a pattern with him. There that that he is a very distinct vision. I mean, and, and it's his vision. I mean, more power to him, whatever. But um, looking at the people that that he has on, on his roster now and, and in the years since since uh, you know we went our separate ways, um, and thinking back on conversations he would have with me and with us. It's it's clear that he he wanted us to be that thing, and we just we weren't we weren't yeah. we we weren't that thing. We we really thought that we, it was down to we had it was down to offers from a few different labels, and we all liked Cleo because just because we we, we you know because Perara just had a similar history to us. Like he was he was a goth kid 
and and before that he you know he started out selling t-shirts in front of punk rock shows so he was he had we had shared history and that that was important to us and that appealed to us yeah. the, the the part that we didn't figure out until later was he had distinct ideas as to what he wanted to do with us and we were like no we just want to be like steel pole bathtub and cop shoot cop <laughs> we're what is and, that? And we want to, you know, we like all the noise bands from New York. And then he would say, yeah, but those bands don't make any money. They're not popular. Yeah. Like he had conversations with that, like that with me. I was like, uh, and then yeah. I'll never forget it. We, he had a conversation like that with me about steel pole bathtub. And I just, and, and I, and I hung up feeling, oh fuck, we're doomed. doomed. We're doomed How because he does, he's big. It was, it was like the point in time where he, where he was just like, I get what you're trying to do, but I'm not, I'm not down with what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the, it's interesting because I think at that point in time, this is what, mid-90s-ish, early 90s? Early 90s. Yeah. Early 90s. So from my perspective, it's really interesting because I remember when the first Nine Inch Nails record came out. And at the time, all of the people- well, Hold on now. What was, what was the first Nine Inch Nails I'm record? I'm talking about Pretty Hate Machine. I'm not talking That's about- That's not the, the first record. The, I know, but it, no one heard that first record because it oh, was not Oh, released. we did. That that's just it. We it was there was a twelve inch. Thing. The first the first thing that came out was a twelve inch down in it. Well, anyway, my my point here is that there was a, a big hubbub in the scene because it was like this guy is just watering down fucking skinny puppy songs and ripping off uh, you know real industrial music oh. and turning it into some kind of like dance shit and and then of course per, perhaps precisely because he did that. Uh, uh, or, or was encouraged to do that by his label and his producer. Uh, it was a big success and went on to establish a, uh, a career, uh, etc., that was way more successful than any of those bands that, that he allegedly ripped off. And the funny thing is, you know, you, you probably read the same interviews I have with Mr. Reznor, where he, he talks at length about these exact same conversations of like the label guy basically pushing him in a direction he didn't want to go so that they would have more sales and be a little more commercial. Yeah, yeah. So, so a couple things. So, yeah, just to follow on what you were saying, um, uh, my first exposure to Nine Inch Nails was Larry coming home one day, and he said, I was listening to KXLU at, at work today, and they, they were doing this, this uh, they were doing like a, a, a demo derby thing. They were just playing like, I think they, they had gone, what was the big uh, music conference you used to have in New York? CMJ. CMJ. So, so it, was like, it was like the week of CMJ. And and they had a they had a show and they were like playing stuff that would, that that had that that people were getting turned on to at, at the CMJ that year. And one of the things they played was the the down in at twelve inch, which predated Pretty Hate Machine by by quite a bit. And they played down in it. And now at the time, uh, I was playing an X photo with Larry and Linda, and we were beginning to move in a very electronic heavy direction. We were incorporating dance beats in a, in a completely different way um it, it we were definitely feeling some noticing some puzzled reactions from people when we would perform this stuff live but we knew you know it was just it was what we were feeling at the time it's just we're, we were really into hip-hop we were really into dance music dance music like we were listening to a lot of like um high energy dance stuff, you know, um, like, like the freestyle stuff coming out of New York at the time. And we were into all that shit. 
Larry came home one day and he goes, hey, there's this dude that they played on KXLU today and he sounds like us. And I was like, really? He's like, I mean, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, um, like a, an ego thing. It was just like, it was coming from a place of like, hey, I know we've been trying to do these things that people don't understand we're trying to do. This guy from Cleveland is doing some shit that sounds like shit we're trying to do. And he played it, and he, he played, and, and he, he, he ran out and got the down end of 12 inch, and, and, he, and he brought it home that day, and he played it. He played it for us. And we were like, oh, <laughs> he is. He's told, those guys are totally doing it. It's like, and it was, and it was like gratifying that way because it was one of those, those moments where like we felt, we felt validated by what we were trying to do because there was this, this guy in, in Cleveland that was trying to do the same thing. Um, so uh, we started playing the shit out of that stuff. Pretty Hate Machine came out. They were still not playing it in the clubs in LA on it, like you were saying. Like we were super tight with Michael and Bruce and all and all the big clubs in LA. We would bring Pretty Hate Machine. There, there was a there was this DJ Sean Schur that 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 played in all the big. He was a DJ for in all the big clubs in, in Helter Skelter, Stigmata, all that stuff. And uh, we would bring the record to him and say, "Please play this." He didn't have it. He didn't even have it. So, yeah, there was very much a time. There was a very long period of time there after Pretty Hate Machine came out where. Um, people weren't playing it. Like it didn't. It didn't. It was a slow burn. It was very much a slow burn. Is that the other thing? Is have you have you ever heard the demos for Pretty Hate Machine? Yeah. Somebody yeah, shared back, back in the golden age of Ill, illicit MP3 sharing. Those things finally went from being like unobtainium to something that you could find pretty easily with the search. And one of the things that I found really interesting about listening to those demos is that like. I actually think that the producer and the record label guy were right that those initial demos and that first pass at that album were actually not that good. They were fucking and, awful. They're terrible. And, and they're, you they're, could they're hear, bad. you could hear how there was something that there, there was a, a spark in there or something that uh, uh, Trent was kind of fumbling around near, but he hadn't quite got a hold of it. And it was one of those rare instances. Well, not even rare. A great example of something where it's like, yeah, the artist clearly didn't have a sense of who they were, and the producer and the label were able to shift what he was doing in a way that the resulting record I thought was vastly superior in every oh, way. Oh yes, Mix, yes, composition, so much. You better. name it to to what he had so, done. And and I, I still think Pretty Hate Machine is a phenomenal album, but it took me a long time to warm up to it. And I, agree. and I would also argue that it is very different from a lot of his, from pretty much everything else in his catalog yes, uh, in is. terms of production and some kind of aesthetics. And it's not to say I don't like later Nine Inch Nails, but I still think Pretty Hate Machine is the best thing that he's done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, kind so of begs that, that question of like authenticity, you know, like if he had just been true to who he was, he probably would have been likely to fail, but who knows? You he know, with, he with, did, to hear those demos, he would have failed. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so it's really like, you know, what, what is good or bad? And you know, like when, for instance, like when Dylan switched from, you know, folk acoustic to electric, people were booing him. They were like, Oh, Oh, traitor, you know, and just like, he had a horrible tour with the band and, in you know through Europe and uh, people were like booing them off the stage every single show and th so they you know the test for them was like you know 
I wonder how long this show's going to last for us. You know, they kind of made it a joke and they would just kind of like get out there and do their best and they turn it up more and they're just like, shut up, you know, like turn it up. Yeah. But he was being true to his own artistic sort of muse. He's just like, no, this is the new thing for me. This is what I'm going to do. And uh, good or bad at the time, it was like hated, you know, because he had sort of turned turned coat against the, the folkies, you know, and now you're just like, the guy's a legend, you know, and whether you, I mean, you know, I don't know. Some people don't agree with that. Some people say, you know, hate the Beatles. And I'm like, I don't understand that because I like the Beatles, but are they good or bad? Some people are like, here's why I hate the Beatles. <laughs> they can like rifle off. Dad, like, this is the, the whole, the whole, I hate the Beatles thing. It just makes me insane. It makes me insane. Yeah, but I've, uh, we, you and I have a few friends that are, that are so anti Beatles and it, and it's, there is so much hypocrisy. Yeah. So what, is that? In what that? is that? What is that? Good, bad Beatles, bad Beatles. Good. You know, it's like, what is that? Yeah. What do you say, Anu? Well, uh, you know, we had sort of raised some of these questions up front about like what makes art or music good or bad for me. And there's a, a couple of different ways I would answer that. Um, the simplest and perhaps purest answer is just like, well, do I like it or not? Yeah. You know, and, and, and by that, it's like, does it, does it somehow stimulate me or tickle me or provoke a reaction that I'm like, oh, that was, that was good. I want to hear it again. And for something like the Beatles, it's like, I, I, I can take a, a half a step back and get all the perspective I need. They wrote great melodies. Uh, they, their voices sounded amazing. Uh, and they were also basically the first people to make successful a lot of things that they were doing, some of which were quite revolutionary for the time. Um, and that combination of things like hooky songs with, with some of the, particularly some of the early stuff is just sort of relatively empty, I love you, baby kind of things. But if you read the lyrics of In My Life, for example, which was off of uh, Rubber Soul, John Lennon wrote that shit when he was 18 years old. And it is a better look back at a complete life at the age of 18 than many poets decades his senior could, could put down. So f for me, it was the total package. But it, it, the thing that grabbed me first and foremost is like high energy performance, hooky songs, with, uh, with good lyrics and some really interesting choices. Uh, as, I, as I grew up, I began to realize like, it's, it's hard to say that you don't like the Beatles because it's like saying you don't like salt. You know, yeah. it is, it is, it exactly. is impossible. It is impossible to look at any pop music, the entire pop music industry, without acknowledging that it would not exist if it weren't for the Beatles on some level. They're the ones who even created the idea of a band as a unit. There would be no Ramones without the Beatles for a, nope. a whole bunch of reasons. So uh, there would anyway. be no bands writing their own songs if it weren't for the Beatles. Yeah, and, and, and the idea of a, a band is sort of like the greater than the sum of its parts or as an entity, right? So for, for me, when I think about it in a little more abstract, and now that I'm older, it's like, what makes something good or bad for me? Well, I, I, do, like, I do like hooks or some kind of memorable thing if it's, if it's songs. Uh, I like a certain kind of artistic unity where I feel like the, the notes and the production and the image and the ideas are all integrated or all kind of line up to craft something. Um, 
I, I tend to really appreciate things that have some kind of boundary pushing uh, or, or that are like a, a little avant-garde or are the first to do something or are doing something radically different. Uh, I appreciate craft. So even if it's not uh, being radical and different, if it's just extraordinarily well done from my perspective as a composer or songwriter, I like things that have emotional impact of some sort that make me feel something. Um, and, you know, I can I could rattle off a list of, of artists or albums recently that I thought were exceptionally good. Like uh, off the top of my head, uh, I think Lana Del Rey is pretty great. And part of it is because... Oh, my God, those, those last two albums that she did with Jack Antonoff. Yeah. Oh, man. Even, even, her, even her, some of her early stuff, you listen to it and you're like, this doesn't all sound good. like anything else that's on the radio, right? It's like you could take a step back and, and sort of objectively listen to it and be like, how is this even on the radio? Or how are people actually listening to this? This is not... There's, there's, there's no trap stuff in it. She has some early hip-hop influences, whatever. But So I think she's great. And when you listen to her stuff, it's like good melodies... There is some emotion there. Um, it's it's well made. Um, the record that I hold up m most recently or, or lately as sort of like the best thing I've ever heard in years and years and years is Double Negative by Low. And for me, it ticks all of these boxes. Uh, the production on it. Uh, so, some people on like uh, Gearspace or whatever refer to the mixing as ridiculous, but I find it to be incredibly creative and and super modern. The songs, the melodies are super strong. They are extremely emotional. The lyrics are great, and it is all in service. The production, the lyrics, the melodies of crafting this particular like vibe or mood, uh, and, and I think that is spectacular. But I could also cite like Scott Walker. Uh, you know, and the stuff that he makes because it is so weird and unusual and yet perfect for what it is. Uh, but I, I can also appreciate, um, you know, just a good a good pop song. Um, so so that's sort of where it comes from for me. There's this this sort of list of criteria, but it starts from like when I hear it, does it does it grab me and and, and uh, connect with me somehow? And then there's perhaps an unfolding where I can look at it and be like, okay. Um, I can, one of the things that's great about being older is that I can now appreciate things that I don't like, right? And, and even if I'm like, I'm not going to buy that or I don't want to play it again, I get that it is well done and it's real good. It's just not for me. And, and I can also acknowledge that I like things, that I enjoy things that aren't good, right? That don't necessarily tick this criteria or that critics are like, that's, that's garbage. And I also recognize that that definition of good and bad that I've just cited there is, is personal. Um, you know, and I don't expect, I, I know that my taste is, is different enough or my aesthetic is different enough from most people's that I don't expect anybody else to, to dig what I do. My favorite record of all time is The Pearl by Harold Budd. And that is an album of what could basically be described as, as pretty piano instrumentals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, good stuff. it's interesting. I think for me, there's like this. Uh, not, I, I hate that word authenticity, you know, or authentic. But it's like, do I believe them? Because I've seen lots of bands where I'm like, I'm not really into this music, but like, I believe that person. Like, they're real. When I see Iggy Pop play, you know, it's beyond playing. It's just like it, it's Iggy Pop's room at this point. Where you're just like, oh, I believe him. He's dangerous. I'm a little scared, and I'm totally intrigued. I like that's that's for me is like great music and that could be classical music that could be jazz music uh punk rock music I don't really care like especially punk rock bands where sometimes it's more of an affectation you know or like 
punk pop stuff, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But when there's a like, a, especially like a lead singer or someone who's fronting a band, and you're like, oh shit, that's real. I believe that person. Like, I want to meet that person, and I'm also scared of that person. You know, like a little bit of that. Or Scott Walker, where you're just like, where does that come from? But it it fits in its own world, and you're just like, wow, I don't, I don't understand it, but I so. It's magical. You like the craft of it, like exactly what you said, Anu. I like all the, all the trappings of that, and you know, I guess that word authentic probably rings true, or it's like it's very real, because um, you can. I mean, I can usually tell when something is like they're really trying hard. You know, I was talking to, I went to Amoeba Records yesterday, the new one down here, and there was a, a vinyl record of this band that I saw on Saturday Night Live, and I was watching them and I'm like they're kind of fun they're kind of good and but I was like but I totally forgot about them until I saw that record again I'm like oh hey that's that record of that band and I and uh my girlfriend said you know oh yeah they were trying really hard right and I went like oh yeah that's the band now I remember (laughs) and I walked and I left you know and I'm like I'm sure it's a good record it's well produced and like they got on Saturday Night Live so you know someone's doing some hard work for them to get them there but um you know, is it is it my aesthetic? You know, kind of doesn't matter. You know, like if someone said, you know, I'm looking for this kind of music, I could point at a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not really into, but I could go, these these guys seem to be really super into what they're doing and like very interesting. Not my thing, but like you might check that out. Like a library, you can just go in there and like I don't have to like all the books in there. <laughs> it's just like they all have some some communication and messaging going on. Um, but good or bad, it depends on what your interests are. I think it is very, very personal, you know, because I, I have my own sort of peculiar tastes as well, or people are just like, you really like that? And I'm like, love it, love it. I can't explain it, and, I, and I'm going to prove it to you. I just, I personally like it. I just worked on a song for a band. There's a metal metal song, and I love heavy metal because there's the whole genre of it all. It's all so different. And it really reminded me of some early kind of British metal stuff, but it was definitely had this distinct American feel to it. And it reminded me of all this stuff I grew up listening to that like I listen to now and go, that's kind of funny now, but it was good. It just got, you know, it got the heart pumping and like it it gave you energy or gave me energy. But I went, oh, that's kind of a nice throwback. I don't, I didn't share that with him because I don't know if he would be offended or not because I don't know where he's coming from. And he's my client. It doesn't matter what I think. As long as I can get it to sound like magic, that's my job. So I get to like zoom out on a lot of this stuff and listen from a very different place of sonic and like intention. You know, like, is this what they were intending sound-wise, production-wise? So anyway, so anyway, that, there's a whole big spectrum in there of like what's good or what's bad, you know? The punk rock kids definitely have opinions on that stuff or... Anyway. Yeah, I, I I was uh, I was one of those kids from like fifteen until around nineteen or twenty. I was super super judgy, very very judgy. I was was Jack Black and High Fidelity basically, and then um, like around the time we started X Photo, um, Larry would say things. He would be like, you know, Larry at the time was 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 really into a lot of things that were very not death rock or goth like he loved Motown loved Motown shit would play the shit out of Motown stuff 
and we'd be in I'd, we'd be in his panel truck just driving around, and, and he would go, "Oh, that string arrangement's great." Um, and he he said something to me that has stuck with me ever since. He goes, "You know, we don't write stuff like the way other people do, and that's okay. Like everybody has their own way of doing things, and we should all just kind of appreciate everybody's art for what it is, and and recognize." that uh, recognize that the acumen involved in anything, no matter how, how mundane or how, how much you don't like it, you, you really do have to appreciate the work that goes into it. And, and I, that's always kind of, that's been yeah, my thing ever since is, is I don't, you know, if people ask me if I like something, I go, well, you know, it, it's, I usually lean towards it is what it is. It's, you know, it's what that person wants to do. It's not really my thing. I never say I hate anything anymore. I just say, you know, it's not my thing. I, yeah. I, I respect the person for what they're trying to do, but it's not, it's just not my thing. Yeah. And they tried. I mean, they actually, I, I got a, you know, there's a couple of records I, I was thinking about where I was like, why did they do that? Cause it was awful. And then I thought at least they tried it and that co- probably cost tried. a lot of money. They yeah, I, I'd rather cool. hear a spectacular like, failure by a band that was like trying to do something ambitious and fall on their face than so, like the stuff that I tend not to like are things where I listen to it and I'm like, this is lazy. This is just trend hopping. This is looking at what's popular right now and basically saying, I want to try to do something that's just like that without adding, uh, without adding any personality or artistry or perspective. Um, you know, and there's, and that is frankly the bulk of what is on the pop music charts. It's like, Hey, kids seem to like it when, when artists do this thing, let's, let's find someone who can do this kind of thing and, and jam it up really quickly. And, um, that there are a lot of people that are fine with that because they just like the sound, you know, they like the disco beat or the metal guitars or the, uh, the, uh, rhyming, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, but but for me, like when I start thinking about what's bad, it's basically stuff that uh, it feels like it is constructed purely for commercial purposes without any like attempt at at anything beyond that. And 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 even the best purely pop songs, from my perspective, you can tell that there is a feeling uh, or or something that has been put into that beyond just like, hey, we need to crap something out to to sell. Yeah, well, that that was like all the pop stuff that Dee was talking about of that period. It would kind of go either way because you got these artists who are in the middle of these things or like these actors who are trained, you know, like, oh, you can sing too and you can dance. Okay, great. We got a little production we're going to put you. We have The producer has an idea, like the monkeys, for instance, you know? Yeah. And we, like, we've got cereal and it's in the box. We need a person to sit on the outside of the cereal box and be the captain crunch for this thing and you kid you're gonna be captain crunch neil diamond neil diamond go write some songs for us neil diamond wrote a lot of that (laughs) well i mean he 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 wrote songs for the monkeys yeah so that's what that's what i'm saying like he he wrote a lot of their hits and you can hear it you know i was in a neil diamond tribute band nice Nice. Which band was it? Was it the Nihilists? Yeah, it was the Nihilists. Uh, And and it's one of those things like, there's a great example. So, uh, you know, if if you think about what most people of our generation think about Neil Diamond, they think of basically a big old cheese ball. They think of like, turn on your hot lights. 
you know, the, the song from E.T. and these big schmaltzy things. But if you go back and look at, at Neil's early stuff, he was pretty uh-huh. rock and roll. That stuff was and, great. And yep. um, Absolutely. wrote, a, a, you know, it was basically like in the same sort of space that like Judy Collins was in, in terms of being like a singer songwriter with some credibility and things like that, and has some great stuff in his career. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where like success kind of blew the doors open for him with the, the jazz singer and stuff like that. And in some ways it kind of ruined him, but it's clear that he, he's just done what he wants to do. And again, it made a lot of people happy. The Rick Rick Rubin tried to do the Johnny Cash thing was, with him a couple of years back, and that's uh, I don't know, that stuff is like, great. I, I I still have that stuff. I didn't like it. I still oh I loved it. I, I actually really? didn't, I, I didn't it. like it, but I was so happy that that they tried to do that because he's a, Neil Diamond is another one of those guys in some ways, sort of like Kenny G, where I think he gets maligned for basically being popular, but it's like guy knows how to write a song. Yeah, yeah. I like the first one. Of, made millions of people happy. I like the first one that he did. Didn't like the second one as much, but that first one that he did with him was I fucking loved it. I played the shit out of it. Yeah. Well, you weren't yeah. in the nihilist though, so. <laughs> so what do I know? <laughs> well, that was that was quite the event. We we basically we played Neil Diamond songs, but we played them like we were ACDC, and so it was like very rock and uh, high energy and loud, uh, loud uh, hard rock guitars. We wore these gold jumpsuits. Hold on a second. Yeah. Call. Call. I, I didn't get a chance Call. to see them. Yeah. I w- oh, here we go. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, that was the, um, uh, you know, the, the nihilists were super successful. But uh, I, a question I have for you guys. So, like, first of all, are, for both of you, are there things that you used to think were good that you now think are bad and vice versa? Are there things that you used to oh, think yeah. were bad that you now think are good? Uh, I've like, got a list. Tell me a little bit about that. I made a list. I mean, that you know, for the first stuff, it's got it's a list. I've got I a list. Statement. No, I I just started scratching. I've been thinking about it ever since he uh, Anu sent the the idea for the topic around, and then I just just scratched at it, scratched out the stuff that had been floating around in my head. Um, for stuff that I used to think was good and and listen to now and go no. Um, it's pretty much all the stuff I talked about, like all the seventies pop stuff I, I listened to. You know, very little of it withstood the test of time for me, except with the exception of the Jackson Five stuff, which is still like some of that's it's just incredible hooky pop songs. Like even now, like ABC is a fucking great song. It's a great song. Um, but uh, the other side, so I, you know, th- there were other th- there were things that that I I I listened to a lot early on, early on in punk rock days that I thought were good and. I still appreciate them for what they are. I just don't really listen to that stuff that much anymore. I feel like hardcore in, 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 the, in the, the varying forms that have survived today just feels like the dominion of kids. It's, it's not, uh, I feel like, like when I hear, when I hear um, bands from my day, you know, reform and, and, and play a set of that stuff, it, it, I wish it. it, it, it I, li- I listen to it and go, gee, I wish they would. They they would have done some. They would have. I, I I wish those guys would have just kept moving and and done other things. You know, and and I, I wish they would be the. There's only like really one band that comes to mind that was like that that continues to be like that. That thing, and that's TSOL. 
The rest of them just um, seem to be perfectly content with playing their first album to, you know, uh, to, to mid-size halls. And they just keep touring and they just keep doing that. I, I, can't, I can't do that stuff anymore. I appreciate it for what it is. It, it definitely changed, you know, a lot of that stuff, like the first Adolescence album, the first Black Flag stuff, the early SST stuff. It changed my fucking, completely changed my life. Changed my life. Like, I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing now if it, if it weren't for that stuff. But I can't, I can't listen to it anymore. I can't, can't really listen to it. Um, the stuff now, the stuff that I, there was a lot of things that I didn't, just didn't understand and did not like in, in, in my, my early um, adolescent judgy punk rock days. Um, and I talked about this a little bit um, uh, with, with one of them. One of them was a quick. Like, I feel very, very fortunate that I had a friend that had an incredible record collection and had, a, had just an, a, a crazy breadth of underground influence that went so far beyond punk rock. Like, he was hip to the first wave ska stuff, like, when nobody was. Like, he was listening to The Selector and, and The Specials and all that stuff, but when nobody was. He was listening to all the, all the power pop records that, that were from, from the mid to late 70s that were really big, these bands that were big in L.A., that um, I did not, I didn't, I didn't get that stuff. And he would put that stuff on. I'm like, what, what, what is, can't you just put Black Flag back on? What's this? Why are you doing this? Uh, and one of those <laughs> bands, one of those bands was The Quick, like the, the early first wave punk stuff, like The Zeros. I didn't get that stuff either. I didn't, it, it was, it was, it just, it didn't Super sound... Melodic. Yeah, it was like slower and it had melody and it had song craft and I fucking hated it. I, I didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't learn to appreciate. I have a for you. Yes. The police. The police. Are they hated punk the or police? Not punk? Fucking hated the police. There you go. Hated them. Do you, it was a mix. I didn't like the clash. I didn't like the clash either. I, I didn't like the police. Wow. Be- oh, that yeah. I hated bold. the clash. Hated the fucking clash. I liked the first clash album a little bit. But by the time I heard the first Clash album, I'd already been pretty well steeped in all of the Frontier stuff, all of the SST stuff, and that's all I wanted. It was like if it's not if it didn't come out on SST or or, or didn't come out on Frontier, then I'm not listening. Like I was just that resolute. What, what about what about Amphetamine Reptile? I didn't like Amphetamine Reptile when it, when I first heard it. No, because same deal. Yeah. By the time I heard Amphetamine Reptile. Um, I had heard uh, the other EPs, like you know the Gimme Shelter EP, and 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 some of those other EPs they did. Um, I don't think First Last and Always wasn't out yet, so I heard some of the the, the more popular EPs, and then and then I heard Amphetamine Reptile. I was like, what what the fuck is this? Well, you, you could also what argue were they that, doing? Like, I mean, like I, it, I like I couldn't understand listen. it. It bummed I went me back out. Listen to all that early Sisters stuff uh, not that long ago, and I'm like, this is horrible. You know, yeah. and it's like, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's a huge. It's it is an enormous chasm between what basically sounds like teenagers dicking around with a four track on their early stuff and what they started to do uh, around first and last and always. Yeah, yeah, it was it was spotty. I mean, this the, the, the early stuff they did. They, you could you could tell that they were kids still just trying to figure out who they uh, were going to be and what they wanted to be. You know, what what about you, Michael? What do you got, man? Well, I love it because this is all the kind of stuff you can have like healthy arguments 
or unhealthy arguments with your buddies about, you know, like guitar pedals, you know, and like, which is a better distortion pedal? And it's like, the one that I have in front of me is the best distortion pedal because it's the only one I have, you know, whatever. I think some of my, you know, guilty pleasures, ah, you know, and then there's the tried and true and they'll, some of my, you know, jump up and go, that's not punk rock on you. That's the new rat pedal, not the old one. You know, whatever. All that stuff is just like, I, you know, for my, myself, <laughs> we have an interloper. Interloper. Um, okay, 80s hair metal. Whole wide spectrum of like, you know, and there's some, and I was, I listened to that stuff because I was sort of the, I listened to everything though. And there's some stuff that like oh, my friends hated or I just, I wouldn't even talk about it with them. And, um, for instance, like the police, I remember like being obsessed with that first record. The, uh, Outlandus de Amor was just like, holy Christ, that is like, and it was rough and raw and punkish, but totally pop hits, you know, and I'm just, how the fuck did they do that? You know, but then there's all this hair metal stuff, which I was in that world. I was handing out, we just drove, uh, into Hollywood last night and we went to Amoeba Records and I went, Hey, let's go down the strip. Let's see if the kids are out there handing out flyers for their new hair metal band. And uh, no one's out there, first of all, because it's illegal. They made it illegal after that whole era to hand out flyers because it was, there was oh. flyers everywhere and trash and just like hairspray bottles and all that shit. But like, you know, you think about uh, one, one example, Poison, the band Poison. You know, it was like this bubblegum, poppy, rock and roll you know, and and uh, you loved them or you hated them? Is there this sort of like love hate them. thing? Where I like hated hated all of that shit. I fucking hated all that shit. Yeah, I still there hate you that go. Shit. There you go. I still hate that, that was, shit. And that was my world back then. And like, if I hear that that song now, I, you know, that record, you know, that first Poison record was just like, oh yeah, all the girls jump up and go, oh, I want to dance, and they run out on the dance floor because it's fun. And back then, you know, it's like. Who are those drag queens up there? And it was like I was one of them, you know, wearing with the hair and the makeup and the, yeah, you were. You know, oh, I, I've band seen band. the band, I've seen the promo pics. Make sure it didn't happen. Yeah, you put on the capizios and the sweat, you know, and you raise the 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 flag of hair and just like it was interesting, you know, because like I was totally into and there was some heavier stuff from that period that was kind of thrown out of like the the British metal scene and the American metal scene and. All those guys hate each other too. It's just like, you know, that's not metal. You know, and they call it like pop metal or whatever. And, you know, it's just like this fun rock and roll romp stuff. And then there was the more serious guys and <clears throat> the scary ones like Wasp, you know, where you're just like, oh, wow, horror rock. And you're just, you know, that whole genre of like uh, hair metal is, you know, is a huge spectrum of stuff. But, um, you know, the ones that were really good at it, like I believe some of them and the other ones, I mean, I believed all of them. They were doing, they were just having fun. They're all high and drunk and doing their thing. And, um, you know, was it good or bad? I mean, certainly it didn't last long. And uh, grunge came along and completely snuffed that out. You know, Nirvana you, you came killed along. killed it dead overnight. But, but, you know, it, it is important to remember that like at the time, 
hair metal had like a death grip on rock music. Yes. And it was it was comprehensive and it was like you had to look a certain way and sound a certain way and it was all about riffs and songs and and guitar solos. And even if you look back at that and you're like wow those outfits are ridiculous mm-hmm. and the production is over the top, you can still find some real creativity and some really hooky songs in there. And I would argue that you can basically look at any uh period any hit period of pop music and you'd be like wow those outfits are ridiculous and the production is over the top but there's a couple of good songs yeah. in there if, if, you, well, if you know where no. to look well there's like quiet riot they were the first heavy metal band to be to go to number one uh on the charts the on the heels one. of a slade cover though yeah but they a still slade cover a all the way to slade the bank. cover all the way to the bank, you know? And I'm not trying to justify that music. I'm just saying, you know, was it good or bad? They certainly had great taste in songs they picked. And so did Van Halen, for that matter. Van Halen, a lot of people were like, those guys are just a fluff band. And they endured for decades, you know? I, I, I'm <clears throat> pointing out Slade because I feel like they just they just decimated a, a, a very a really, really good song. Oh, I loved here's, it. I couldn't here's stop Here's maybe... Maybe, but there's a whole bunch of people that would have never heard of Slade if it weren't for Quiet Riot. Including, I, I would assert and, that, and that, that like, there are people it's not like Slade. It, it's not like Slade were some poor, starving dudes who never broke big. You know, they had an extensive and long career that was only elevated by Quiet Riot's success. They did. I would assert that with that stuff in particular, <laughs> that there are people that probably still listen to that shit. And still don't know that the, that's Slade, and that they didn't dig around and try to figure out so that's a Slade song. So, but but you could you could say that about any artist that's ever covered anybody's song ever. You know that that Jeff Buckley song "Hallelujah" it, is so beautiful. Stop it! You fucking stop it! <laughs> here's here's the bit. Here's the, you, no no. Here's the thing. You you guys ta- you guys have been talking about this a lot. Um, it's the the. Among the myriad issues that I have, I have with that whole movement, the, the main thing is, is, is authenticity. Is authenticity. What do they call it? They called it fucking glam rock. Now, by the time that, by the time Motley, now, I, I should back up, I said, love the first Motley Crue album. Hair metal I, is what they called it. People called it glam rock, too. The media called it fucking glam rock, too. I called they it totally heavy did. metal. And, it, well, and I was you wrong. You can call it what you want. I was wrong. The, the glam rock part of it, by the time that was a thing, by the, by, by the time the strip bands were, were, were blowing up and bands like Poison were being called glam rock, which they were, yes, it made me insane. It made me insane because it was so fucking inauthentic. You could listen to that stuff and know that they, they not, what, none of those guys, like you, and you can hear interviews with them. They never talked about Mark Bowen. They never fucking talked about Slade. They never talked about any of that stuff yet. They just, they decided they were fucking glam rock. So they borrowed all of the sugar that Mark Bolin introduced. Did not give him credit for it. And then they 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 and, and then all of those bands proceeded to produce this thing that didn't sound fucking anything like any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it made it just made me nuts. It, it's it just it it, made, it just it, it made me crazy. It sure sold a lot though. Whatever. Yeah, so it must be good. Well, I, I would just simply note, it's like, again, you can take Mark Bolin, T-Rex. It's not like people haven't heard uh, of him or that his place in the sort of musical archives isn't uh, assured. 
Uh, but clearly, whatever these folks were doing, there was some combination of the promotion machine and the biz combined with perhaps the very leeching out of the weirdness or strangeness that is precisely the thing that, that made it be successful. And, and uh, you know, I can listen back to that hair metal stuff now. Like, I didn't appreciate a lot of it at the time because I was squarely in, like, the punk new wave thing. But I go back now and I listen to, like, uh, Out of the Cellar by Rat. And I'm like, oh, yeah. there's some great songs on there there's some I, i'll give you that guitar i'll give you that there's some some you know, really well crafted songs in that album i, I will, i'll give you that even i give even, I, I, I even uh, those those guys get extra credit for me because they were from san diego so they were kind of removed from, from it in a way they were kind of removed from the whole thing no not cinderella the brian adams of metal no cinderella yeah no uh, <laughs> Well, even Brian Adams himself is a guy yeah. who is clearly a, a pop musician. I go back and I listen to Brian Adams' classic hits now, it, it, accepting the schmaltz that he did with, with Mutt, uh, you know, everything I do, forget that. But like the hits off of like uh, Restless and Cuts Like a Knife. Yeah. <clears throat> perfect. Great. Yeah. Amazing. Wish oh, good. I write songs that were that good. Yep. You know? I agree. And, and at the time. At the time, I was just like, "Oh, they're playing this again." Um, but but even back in those days, back when you know Heaven was blowing up the charts and and helping to invent the power ballad, every time "Run to You" came on the radio, I was like, "I I, I don't even want to admit it to myself, much less anyone else." But this is a pretty good song. They were good <laughs> songs. They were good songs. He's a master songwriter. He wrote songs for so many people that I read an article. He was like, "They said these are fifty songs that you didn't know Brian Adams wrote." That run to you, yeah. Run to you was something he and his writing partner were originally trying to pitch to Blue Oyster Cult, and yeah. that whole guitar riff that makes up Run to You was them trying to come up with something that was like "Don't Fear the Reaper," uh, which is perhaps yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear that now, and 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 perhaps that's part of why it it resonated with me. But anyway, that 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 is an example for me of something that I might I used to like think was bad that i now look back on and i'm like this is actually really good Pretty damn uh, and and even even springsteen uh i didn't really understand bruce springsteen when i was a teenager and at a certain point i was like all right there's a reason that this guy has had a long career and means a lot to people i'm going to kind of dig in and the thing that was my way in was listening to nebraska oh, and yeah. uh once i heard that record i was like oh okay i totally get it now and that enabled me to go back and listen to everything else that he's done in a different that way. was a good record and now i have a, a tremendous appreciation for him that was a good record born to run's a really fucking good record it's a really good record jimmy Iovine all the way to the bank there yep you know there is, i i mark I, I, I feel the need to clarify. There is some metal that I like. I just don't like that stuff. <laughs> I, I, I still like the you, first... You don't uh, like the, the bubblegum poppy, yeah. No, I just don't... I, I like the first two Motley Crue records. I, I always love Sabbath. You know, Sabbath was, was a huge component of the early punk scene. There was a lot of, a lot of punk bands I listened to that were covering Sabbath. Like yeah. the Dickies covered Sabbath. Not hair metal, though. They're not hair metal. Just don't like, don't they were just nuts. Hairy. Yeah. I, you know, like even that some of the early Metallica stuff, the, um, oh, shoot. What's the one with the tombstones oh, yeah. on it? The one with the tombstones on it. I can't remember oh, what it was. Master called. of Puppets? Master of the Puppets. Master what, of Puppets. Great record. Amazing. Great record. First, did, like, I, the three, rest four, of five it, records were just like, oh, wow. Yeah. Once they sort of switched to commercial, then I was like, 
that's pretty good. And it's something changed for me, you know, and I think a lot of people just went like, you know, what, what the fuck else are they going to do but progress into whatever's next for them? They're another band, too, where they try shit, you know, and I'm like, some of it seems embarrassing. I'm just like, ah, I don't know. Why are you having a, why are you on there with your therapist? And like, and I'm just like, oof. and I didn't see any of that stuff. So I'm, I'm not one to judge. But it's like, you know, they tried shit. They did some different stuff. And I'm like. I hope someone would grant me a little grace if I try some shit. You know, like my EP when it comes out. Give me a little grace. That's not extra fancy. You know, it's like you just got to try stuff. I think being an artist is really tough because especially when people have known you a particular way. I'm not all that popular, but like, thankfully, I don't have to deal with that. But, you know, trying something new for yourself and and just seeing how people react. Like, what do you think of this? You know, and just see what happens. And uh hair metal i'm i'm not ever going back there but i'm certainly glad i did some of that stuff and it was like you know i won't i'm not going to tell you where to find it or show you the pictures but <laughs> but it's so like you know that that Roz, whole world rosy lane had a good run they had a good run yeah we did all right i i think michael touches on something that is another aspect of one of the things that helps me think of bands or, or records that i think are good versus bad so one of the things that I really like and, and always appreciate are bands that are willing to take big risks and pivot or blow up what they were doing. Yeah. So you could look at someone like Metallica, for example, and it's pretty clear that like after um, uh, uh, Kill 'Em All, like they locked on to something that was pretty revolutionary, right? Uh, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets. Uh, those two records, like they had this instantly identifiable sound that was, there's no blues. In they that sounded like a very proficient hardcore band. Yeah. So they sounded yeah, like, they, but, they but sounded even, like, even like still, a hardcore band with chops, like that were fucking on. Yeah. With, with chops and, and with, a, with clearly like drawing from uh, a, a, a heavy metal background and kind of distilling it in a particularly unique way. But it was also clear by the, the next record, uh, uh, And Justice for All, that they were like yeah. running out of steam mm-hmm. with that and that they could continue to just make that record over and over again to diminishing returns. And from, from my perspective, like Master of Puppets is an essential hard rock heavy metal record. It is, in yeah. my opinion, it is. Metallica's masterpiece uh, in any list of like, if you want to understand like rock and roll in general, it needs to be on that, right? I concur. But uh, I, I, I could sit, and, and if, they, if they had all died in a bus crash, uh, you know, around, around that time, you, we would still be talking about them as like these geniuses because they made these, these brilliant records. But it was also clear to me with Anne Justice Fraud, it was like, these guys are basically like, have hit the walls of their creative fishbowl. And I... I was really disappointed with the Black Album. I thought there were like two or three great songs on it, but it wasn't what I wanted from Metallica. And of course, it was wildly successful. And of course, since then, they've gone on to to make a bunch of stuff. I don't begrudge them that. In fact, I love the fact that they were finally like, all right, let's try something else. There's other bands that have done that sort of thing. And I, like, when Neil Young did that uh, electronic record, Trans, I freaking love that. I remember that. Yeah, it was was pretty good. And, And very... Yeah, well, and, and just so, so radically different. Or uh, even when 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 you two did Octung Baby and was like, "Hey, let's let's try something else for a while." I always love it when bands do that, even if it is a complete misfire. If you ask me, my favorite—you well, you know what I think the best Rolling Stones record is? Their what? Satanic Majesty's Request. 
It's a good record. They're satanic majesty. It's a good record. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Mine, mine um, is uh, anyway, Mine uh, is probably still Beggar's Banquet. Love Beggar's Banquet. Yeah, but you know, same kind of thing. It, it's very country. It's 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 a pretty heavy, very quiet, not very stonesy country country western blues kind of thing. It's quiet. I don't know. I like. It. Yeah. Well, there's also don't forget the uh, the Lou Reed Metallica record. Did you guys ever hear that? Uh, uh, unfortunately, yes. And that would be a great example of something that I thought was super brave, but an absolute failure. Like, yeah. it's just bad. Bad. Metallica bad. I like some of that <clears> stuff they did <throat> yeah, with Marianne Faithful. I like that stuff they did with Marianne Faithful. Yeah. It was pretty good. And, and, yeah. and the thing I would say is, even though it's bad, I actually am... I have way more respect for it than if they had done what everyone expected them to do, which would have been Lou Reed doing his all right thing over Metallica riffs. Right. Yeah. Totally. So I, I appreciate to, that they went there. Yeah. They just tried it, you know? And I think that's the thing is, you know, this whole conversation of, you know, like what's good, what's bad. I think it's so subjective, but it's also, thank God, you know, we get to decide what's good or bad for us and time changes things. I'm look, kind of looking at all the elements we talked about. Time has just definitely changed my opinion of certain things where I listen to things now and I'm just like, what was I thinking? But sometimes I listen to stuff and it's like, it was incredible back then and it's incredible now. Like, it amazes me how some, some things just endure and actually maybe even get better. And uh, sales and popularity and that whole subject, you know, of like, what are all the cool kids listen to? I get a little suspicious, but I'll try it out. I'll check stuff out and listen and go, oh, I never would have listened to this and, and, and until you know that band had gotten really popular and I can go, okay. Or I may just go, eh, not for me. Good for them, but not for me. So it's really, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting conversation about that and what's good and what's bad, I think. <clears throat> and we're just talking about mostly music right now. But there's all sort of those pop elements, you know, pop culture and, you know, I'm sure they wouldn't have been talking this, you know, back in uh, in the 16 and 1700s, you know, when they're making classical music, you know, and they're just like, oh, God, that, uh, that guy's terrible, you know, and he's awful, you know, and then gets hugely popular and just, I'm sure it was all the same conversation of like, I don't get it. Well, but, that, that, um, there's anyway. that Beethoven kid that always seems to be described as as the punk of his of his of his time. He wasn't popular. Perhaps. Always back to the punk with you, D. It's got to be punk. So, well, yeah. So, oh, I, I think, I, I I think wanna, a lot of go go ahead and go on. There was something I wanted to talk about. The I was just going to say, in my experience, and when I when I talk about like the history of 20th century music, pretty much without exception. The stuff that ends up being really influential and important was absolutely reviled when it came out. Whether you're talking about uh, Beethoven or uh, Debussy or, you know, I mean, you name it. You, you name the major artistic movement. Uh, serialism, 12, 12-tone music, you know, Berg, Webern, and, and Schoenberg. Uh, painters, same kind of deal. All yep. that stuff, like... When it comes out, everyone's like, this is garbage. And then 20 years later, or 10 years later, everybody Van is Gogh. doing exactly that. You could, say, you could say the same thing about uh, punk rock, new wave, synthesizers in music, drum machines in music, hip hop, um, you know, t take your pick. 
uh, in some ways, that kind of strong reaction is one of the best indicators that something is actually going to have a really big impact as opposed to the everybody likes it. You could also flip this around by basically saying the Grammy's best new artist is a kiss of death. And most of the artists that win that, like, that's it, their career's over. They, they, nothing ever happens for them again. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, humans like to put things in boxes so they can relate to it simply and easily. At least in the modern culture, modern popular culture, it's like, you know, is it good or bad? And, you know, what what box does it fit in so I can start to relate to it rather than something scary or, like, interesting? You know, I think people uh, are generally not as um, experimental and sort of brave and sort of uh, what's jumping out there. I mean, you know... And, and I'm not saying the kids at all, because like kids, kids are making some amazing music these days where I'm just like, wow. And they're also making some really throwback stuff that was like 20 years ago. They're making 90s music again. And I'm just like, whoa, what did I miss? But it's that cycle. And we love to put things in boxes, you know, so just it makes it easier to, to sell the commodity, you know, like. It's really all about that sort of marketing and PR. It's like, oh, well, it's kind of like this and this put together. And you'll probably like that. Here's a bowl of it, you know, and it's like, oh, you know. So I, I don't know what it is about the human experience that wants to do that. Maybe so we don't, you know, we think we're going to get killed or something like a, there's a fucking dinosaur inside that thing. But um, old, you know, fight or flight sort of thinking, but. Uh, and I also like to get out on the skinny branches and see what will happen with stuff, too, for better or for worse, whether it's listening or making, uh, you know, or talking about music. So but it's great. I mean, it's a great conversation to to keep the uh, the mind open to like, you know, what what have I been missing? Maybe there's some old stuff. I'm like, I'm, I have a whole huge library of work that I haven't listened to in so long just in my music library. And uh, I keep hearing these like records being played on. And I'm like, fuck, I have that record. I should go back and listen to it. I don't do enough of that because I'm listening to music all the time, getting paid to do that. It's a very different experience than it's a very technical experience. It's enjoyable, too. But rather than like just put on an old record I haven't heard in 100 years. When I was doing archiving, that was interesting. I heard this record um, that I grew up with and I and I heard something on there that I don't remember ever hearing before. It was like an edit in there. But because my ears are so sharp to that stuff now, I went, no, that's the wrong version. Why is it on that record? And I stood and went and I like looked at the tape and I'm like, holy shit, why did I never hear that before? It's funny you bring that. Because it was I, like, I, hear, I hear splicing. I hear splice edits and shit all the time now. Yeah. Never heard it, but you know, as, as a kid. Like, Wait a minute. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. It's fascinating, but so um, while we still have a little bit of time, so given that it seems pretty clear that we all have some kind of criteria around what makes something good or bad, um, how how long did it take you uh, before you started making music yourself, where you were like, "This is good," and what what were the obstacles you have to get over, or or have you gotten there yet? Oh yeah, that's an interesting question. I'll do oh, a hey. short answer to that. The Music part is pretty easy for me. I, I started to like my music, the writing of just the music part, not my lyrics and not my singing really, until, boy, that took me seven, eight years to kind of get to that. The music part I got to, I was, I was always kind of dicking around until I got into a band 
where I sort of had a format to experiment and fit into. And then it was like, oh, wow, I didn't know this was... And my guitar playing completely changed, kind of because it had to. It was super fascinating. Um, and there was a whole bunch of experimental stuff that I was getting into. And then I was really like, wow, I really like my guitar playing. It has its own kind of signature thing that I like and is recognizable to me. And people started asking me to play on some stuff and I'm because they want that Michael Haley thing on there. And I'm like, oh, I have a thing. Cool. I had no idea. I knew what I liked, but anyway. And then the lyric thing really in the last three, four years, you know, like I'm doing, I'm working on a song with Ani right now and I'm like, I need to sing and write more lyrics more. You know, I just, it's something I wanted to do to tell those stories, but also develop that style and find my voice with that. And so I've been doing a lot of that and I'm liking it more and more. There's still room to grow always, but like, I feel like that's taken years too. I mean, decades for sure. So long time. It's a long, it's a long path. The end. <laughs> How about you, D? And then we're pulling a card. What was the question again? I didn't. I don't think I really understood the question. When did you get good? Like, when did you start making stuff that was good? Like, given that you have this aesthetic and you're like, oh, I know the difference between good and bad. Did you immediately oh. start making good good music, or how how long did it take you to get to a place where you're like, all right, I'm making stuff that's good now? And what and, and what changed? I don't really feel like I started making good music until until like the third uh, Mimeograph album, which was like I, I it was like 2012. I, I you know I'm too self I don't know I'm too self critical I don't I I I can go back and listen. So what changed? What makes what makes the third Mimeograph record good and the second one not good? Because it was the first time I did something and played it back and, and, and thought, it's beginning to sound like I know what I'm doing. Where I never had that feeling with most of the things that I had done up to that point. Mm. Not dangerous um, enough. I mean, you know, the, the, the first Penal Colony record, I, 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 I still, that, that Michael and I worked on, I can still appreciate it for what it is, um, and it and but it's it's more of a it's more of a time capsule for me. It's just it's 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 um, it's just a thing that that brings up some good memories around. You know, it's just like this this really magical convergence of of me and Michael and these three other people, and and it and it just it, it, everything just kind of was fire, and everything just kind of worked. Um, but even with that, you know, I'm, I'm sure Michael would agree that, that we made some decisions in the recording process that that I, I know that I reg I still regret to this day. Tried to fix when when we did the remastering stuff with the demos with some of it. I mean, with the demo versions of some of that stuff. Tried to make some of that right, but you know, it, even with that stuff, it's like I I I also hear things in it that remind me that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So yeah, I don't know, man. Like I, I, I I'm, I'm too self-critical to really find a good point in time for that. I again, like I said, I feel like that third mimeograph album what, what, uh, took a very long time to do. It was really hard. It was it it was it was a lot of really hard work. I had to really 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 learn how to play upright bass. Uh, I didn't have to do it so much for the first two. 
really had to do it for that. And I began to began to realize that rockabilly hillbilly stuff, just like getting getting that stuff to, to sit in the pocket right and, and getting it to sound right and swing right is really, really fucking hard. That whole Chet Atkins style of guitar, super fucking hard. Um, but I feel like I yeah. did some things that I can still listen to it now and, and go, yeah, I kind of I did kind of nail that. And I got some good feedback from friends at the time uh, when I did that record. That yeah. that and, and the nihilism record, like I felt like the nihilism record really felt That's a like great record. it was it was my attempt at making a good synth pop record. Yeah. You know, and I and I I still feel pretty proud of that one. But beyond that, I don't know. Opening doors. All right. Well, shall we pull a card? Let's do it. A great conversation. Oh boy. We're we're okay. We got the sound. Go. Uh, Anu's got decorate, decorate. I lo- I've always liked that one. Um, Michael's got only a part, not the whole. I've got not the whole. Oh my God, Michael, we pulled the same card. Not the whole, baby. We, you and I pulled the, <laughs> you and I pulled the exact same card. Only a part, not the whole. Ding, 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 ding. What are the odds? Today we share the brain cell, D. Yeah, I guess. That's hard. Only a part, not the whole. Fo- focus on the smallest thing, and then and then think about the whole thing later. Decorate, Story decorate. Like. Yeah, that's a great card. Decorate, like decorate. To me, is like like back up. Think about the little details. Think about the little. Think about the little things. It sounds like a Duran Duran song. <laughs> decorate, decorate. Off of their new record, Future Past. Yes. <laughs> Decorate, Which is that? Decorate. There's actually some some great stuff on here. Yeah, they just did a performance on a rooftop that one of my friends went to. She's in the press, and uh, she took some pictures and some video. It looked fucking great. Those guys are awesome. Yeah, they they also just did a really uh, great cover of Five Years by Bowie uh, pretty recently too. Uh-huh. I awesome. saw them. They just played on Austin City Limits uh, a month or so ago. They were great. Mm. They were really good. Very, hugely underrated. Hugely popular. All the way to the bank. They're great. They're still a good live band. Still a really good live yeah. band. Which is something to be said for the era they came from. All right, fellas. Awesome. Thank you very much. Well, until next we'll week. We'll see you all next week. Bye, guys. Howdy. Be good. <laughs>